It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Griff about Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID. According to VeryWellMind.com, a person with DID will experience the presence of two or more distinct identities or personalities, also known as alters. These personalities recurrently take control of the person's behavior, and they often experience a loss of memory of what happened while another personality or alter was in control. Each alter has a different set of traits, personal history, and way of relating to the world. These alters may have different names, mannerisms, genders, and preferences. Griff suffered a decade of abuse in childhood starting around the age of two, which is when his alters also started to develop. By the time Griff was diagnosed with DID, many of his alters had upwards of 20 years of life experience. Over time, he was able to break down the walls within himself to gain access to the memories, skills, and experiences of his alters. And now, most of the time, he experiences life with co-consciousness. This is one of the absolute most fascinating conversations I've ever had, not just on this podcast, but in my life in general. This episode goes into the nature of self, the nature of consciousness. Griff's lived experience gives me an insight as to the nature of the spectrum that human beings experience as normal consciousness, which is an incredible gift. But on top of that, Griff also lives with a constellation of chronic illnesses, including migraines, fibromyalgia, seizures, anxiety, and depression. But not all of his alters experience these conditions in the same way. He'll tell us about one alter that doesn't experience life physically. So when Griff is in physical pain, say from fibromyalgia, he lets his alter take over and his sensation of pain will lessen. And I'll tell Griff, you know, as someone with chronic pain, that sounds like a superpower to me. Griff and I also share a lot of interests, science fiction, Star Trek, the Dune series. So we have some fun talking about some nerdy things at the beginning of the conversation. For me, this episode is what this podcast is all about. I'm thrilled to bring it to you today. And we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. A quick note, this episode was recorded at the end of 2023. So when Griff mentions things that happened earlier in the year, he's talking about 2023, which I wanted to make clear because this is coming out now in 2024. Let's take a look at what people are saying about last week's episode with Serena about trigeminal neuralgia and CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome. Over on TikTok, Courtney Soler left us a comment in response to trigeminal neuralgia saying, I had its cousin, occipital neuralgia. I had surgeries to remove several peripheral nerves in my head and face. Trigeminal neuralgia seems a million times worse based on my discussion with people who have it and studies I've read. Hopeful for a cure for you all. And over on Instagram, Danielle Signorelli comments, Thank you for your podcast episode. You are a fighter and an inspiration. I relate to your story with the trigeminal neuralgia and complex pain, sending you so much love. Danielle, thank you for your comment. Danielle has an amazing episode on this podcast, chronicling her own journey with extreme facial pain. And I'm always appreciative to hear from Danielle. Before we jump into our conversation with Griff today, I have to share a thank you to our Patreon subscribers who are supporting this show with monthly financial contributions. If you are enjoying this podcast, we need your support, and Patreon is one of the best ways to do so. We have three tiers of support, the $2 per month supporter tier, 
the $7 per month patron tier, and the $25 per month producer tier. Everyone gains access to monthly bonus episodes featuring myself and my partner, Andy. We are late on our December episode, but we are making that a priority. It will come out uh, very likely this week. We're going to tell you all about our trip to Puerto Vallarta, which was so much fun. We have so much to say. Of course, each tier of support also comes with special recognition on the podcast and even gifts when you sign up. We have amazing Major Pain coasters and tote bags made by my mom. And speaking of recognition, thank you so much to our Patreon producers supporting this podcast at the highest tier of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Your continued support is so appreciated. Now that my health is improving and I am working a little bit, it is getting harder to carve out the time that I need to create the podcast. And the best way that you can help me to do so is to support the show financially through Patreon. I hope you'll check it out, patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. If you have a diagnosis of any kind or you are a caregiver, check out our affiliate program with Rare Patient Voice. You can click on the link in the description of this episode, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast to sign up to participate in research studies and surveys. If you sign up using that affiliate link, you'll be supporting this podcast. And then if you are selected to participate in a study or a survey, you will earn an average of $120 per hour for your time. It's an awesome program that I hope you will check out. Other great ways to support the show include leaving us a positive rating and review wherever you listen to us, sharing the show with a friend, or following us on social media. We are on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at Major Pain Podcast. I'll remind you as always that my guests and I are not medical professionals. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our incredible episode with Griff about dissociative identity disorder. Griff, welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk to you today. We've been chatting a little bit and you've told me a little bit about your story and it sounds like there's been a lot that you've been through and I'm really excited to hear about it today. There has been indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get to know you a little bit. Why don't you tell us about yourself? My name's Griff, or at least that's what I go by online. My legal name is, is uh, a problem for a lot of people, so I just go by Griff. <laughs> I've been uh, officially disabled since 1993. Um, I have a complex sort of cluster of, of issues, both physical and psychological. Um, we'll get into more of that later. Um, I've been married to my partner for my husband for over 11 years now. We've been together for 25 years. Um, we have one fur baby named Georgie, who, of course, is, you know, the owner of the house. We just <laughs> rent the house and feed her at her convenience. We refer to her as an ambassador from the realm of Felina, you know, the, the planet and or universe of cats. Um, <laughs> and the past three years, I've been pretty actively involved in issues surrounding disability, mm. not so much awareness and information so much as fighting back against the disinformation that well, every government agency I can think of and a lot of NGOs in Canada 
tend to do. We've been working towards getting a disability benefit actually acted on in Canada for the past two years now. So that's taken up a lot of my time. And I'm also a struggling artist, hmm. you know, my own website and, and paint watercolor images. And that's a, a complex thing there too. So I keep as busy as I can. Wow. Awesome. Very cool. What are you nerdy for? What's your, you know, what's your thing that you're really into? I am absolutely obsessed with uh, not only the Dune series from Frank Herbert, but just about everything that Frank Herbert has ever written. No way. Um, yeah, I've had a lot of favorite authors over my life. I'm 58 years old now, but I discovered Frank Herbert when I was a mid-teen, like 15, 16 kind of thing. And I was looking for something new to get me excited. And from the first time I read the Dune series, I was hooked. I have every book in the series that's come out in trade paperback. I've reread the entire series, the original six, the following two by his son and uh, Kevin Anderson. Yeah. All the prequel trilogies, uh, the Houses trilogy, the Schools trilogy. The whole, I, I go back to it time and time and time and time again. It's, it's provided me with very much of the philosophical foundation I have for how to lead my life. Wow. And, and then I'm also not as nerdy, but pretty nerdy about Stephen King. He's one of the great um, true horror writers of our time. He can, he can write horror without relying on jump scares, which is his Gunslinger series was just yes. absolutely incredible. Yeah. And, and the other thing is Star Trek. Uh, oh I my mean, God. <laughs> I, I, I'm old enough to have watched the original episodes before they were actually in syndication. So I, I have, you know, some controversial opinions on some of the newer stuff. Loved Picard, thought that was amazing. I think Discovery lost its way as far as writing and, and good tight storytelling around about season three. You know, there's only so many seasons when you can fill in the, the whole season with a whole bunch of character development and have a really weak sort of alpha enemy to fight that season. But overall, you know, I'm, I still love Star Trek and I think any Star Trek is good Star Trek. I don't, I, I hate the gatekeepers that say, you know, if you like the new stuff, you're not a true fan. Or if you only like the old stuff, you're not a true fan. Or, you know, they, they attempt to divide everybody up. As far as I'm concerned, you like Star Trek. Even if it's one episode of one season, you're a Trekkie. Wow. I'm so glad I asked because this is my wheelhouse right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm obsessed with Star Trek, but also I've been reading Frank Herbert. I just finished oh. book three of the original six. Uh, I'm yeah. going to start book four soon. And then before we started recording, I was telling you about how I was in Hawaii and got COVID for the first time last summer. And... One of the books I read while I was recovering from COVID was The Whipping Star by Frank Herbert. Yeah. And I had no yeah. idea it was part of a series. I was at, a, you know, I love going to used bookstores and just browsing the sci-fi fantasy because those are my two yeah. genres that I read. And I found yeah. the Dosadi experiment and I was reading the oh. back and I'm like, wait, this is the same character from The Whipping Star that I just read. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I picked that up. I have this old used copy of Dosadi experiment that I'm going to read as well. Yeah, I'm such a huge sci-fi nerd. 
uh, lifelong sci-fi nerd. My podcasting career started with science fiction. And my other project besides this podcast is I green screen myself into old episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> and I've, I've made it into like an absurdist comedy where my character is dating Data. Right. I don't know why that started, but now it's a thing that I have been doing for a long time. <laughs> if, if I was to green screen myself, I think from the current lot of, of series, I would have to still go with Voyager just because mm. I would love to have Janeway as my captain. Yeah. And and there were a whole bunch of secondary characters that got some screen time for an episode or two, but but didn't really get a full chance to tell her story. And of course, Seven of Nine is just beyond unbelievable so yeah yeah i always wanted more from seska on voyager so did i yeah yeah okay yeah. it's gonna take all of my self-control to steer us back <laughs> away from science fiction because you know i really miss podcasting about sci-fi but okay we got to talk about what we're here to talk about today i'm sure we could okay. probably talk for two hours about frank herbert and star trek alone but let's get into this try two weeks I, yeah seriously <laughs> Um, Griff, what is your major pain? Well, I have a few of them. Psychologically, as far as my diagnoses go, um, I was diagnosed with uh, complex PTSD and dissociative identity disorder back in 93. And um, those issues have, I hate to say addressed, they certainly haven't been cured because I, I don't happen to believe that there is a cure um, but I have learned to navigate my system so that most of the time I don't suffer any of the debilitating uh, fugue states and memory loss and all that sort of stuff that I used to deal with. Back in 2005, I was diagnosed with uh, generalized anxiety, um, dysthymia with acute major depressive episodes, and uh, seizure disorder not otherwise specified. Hard to describe, but there's a vesicle that exists between the two hemispheres of the brain that is responsible for holding spinal fluid and, and sort of circulating it throughout your brain. Apparently, mine has very thick walls on it, which is indicative of the migraines and the cluster headaches I've had ever since I was a child. Wow. And apparently, um, it's causing problems. I have these uh, these seizures that I described as being locked in. Where for anywhere up to 90 seconds, I'll just be frozen in place and I'm fully aware of everything that's going on around me, but I can't move. I have absolutely no voluntary muscle control whatsoever. Mm. So it does things like it affects my hands. I'll be grabbing for a cup of coffee and my hand will stop just shy of actually closing on the mug of coffee. And then the mug will just slip out of my hands and crash to the floor. Or I'll be walking along and I'll stop mid-stride where one leg is actually up off the floor and the other, and I've still got forward momentum happening. So I'll end up crashing into things or stuff like that. Wow. And then I also have uh, fibromyalgia, which is a constant stressor. There's absolutely no cure for it. And most doctors are, are um, sort of treating the symptoms rather than, than trying to get into what it is that causes it. Yeah. So I'm on a, a number of psychiatric medications where their off-label impact is that they help with sleep and they help with precursors for migraines and stuff like that. So 
I would say my biggest pain is the constant background hum of having to regulate my reaction to the pain I'm feeling. You know, what most people would consider to be a seven or an eight on a pain scale has to be a two or a three for me, or I just can't function. Mm. So, you know, there's this constant mental energy spent on checking to see if I've got a migraine or a cluster headache coming on and, you know, checking in with my hips and my knees and my wrists and all those things on a regular basis throughout the day to see if I'm overextending myself. And, you know, all of that interferes with my creative process as an artist because I'm used to, you know, when I get into the zone with my art, I'm just at it for hours on end. And then, you know, the hand cramps that just about any artist will tell you the experience are a hundred times worse for me because while I'm in the zone, I'm ignoring all the other signals that are going on in my body. Yeah. That's such an interesting way of putting it that someone else's seven or eight has to be your two or three. And I totally yeah. get what you mean. It's like, you have to convince yourself yeah. that this pain is manageable and, and background noise. Yeah. Otherwise there's no way to live. Uh, so you exactly. just kind of have to convince yourself to put it on the back burner and Yep. That, you know, say, this isn't going to kill me. This is just noise. And I can learn how to ignore that noise. It's like being in a crowded room and focusing on one voice. But that's so yep. hard and exhausting, especially if you're doing it, it all day, every day. That takes such a toll on your nervous system. Yeah, it does. It does. I've tried, you know, just about all the non-addictive pain management treatments that are out there. And either they don't work for me at the level that they're advertised to, or they interfere with my creativity and my impulsivity when it comes to art and stuff like that. And I end up just being this mindless drone walking through my day. So yeah. the trade-off is, is something I'm not willing to engage with right now. Yeah. And that totally makes sense. Absolutely. Everything has a side yeah. effect. And it's all about finding the best way through for you, and that's individual, it's going to be different from everyone else. People are always coming yeah. at people like us with, you know, have you tried yoga? <laughs> Which is so annoying. Or crystals or, or essential oils or, you know, <laughs> yeah. all these, these other things. And it, it reminds me to sort of, you know, bring it back to our interests. I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quotation. But one of the philosophies of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood mm. in the Dune series was that the training they engage with teaches one to learn to balance on strange surfaces. Mm. So me, I'm always sort of adjusting the fulcrum point. You know, if you think of a seesaw kind of thing, I'm always adjusting my fulcrum point so that I'm trying to find balance in whatever it is that I'm doing. Because I know if I go too far in one direction, that'll cause problems. If yeah. I go too far in another direction, <laughs> that'll cause problems. Yeah. But the course is always changing. So it's, so it's almost like, you know, guiding a, a ship through strange waters where, you know, getting your sea legs kind of thing. Trying to balance on strange surfaces is, is one of my, you know, root mantras that I live by. Wow. That's awesome. I love that. And I see what you mean about the writing of Frank Herbert sort of dictating your philosophy of how you get through the day. Yeah. And that's, that's what great art can do. Uh, it can kind of give yeah. you little nuggets of things that live in your brain and help you to process what you're experiencing, which is so powerful. Exactly. Let's go back yeah. to when this all started. You said 93 when you were 
diagnosed yeah. with uh, dissociative identity disorder. And that's that's a disease we've not covered on the podcast yet. So I'd love to hear your definition of what that is and then dive into your journey back in 93 when this started. Sure. Um, it was uh, spring of 93. I'd been chronically dissociating for years by that point in time. I had huge memory gaps and and had vague wouldn't say memories so much as you know the kind of memory you have of a tv show that you've watched and you can't quite place the characters mm -hmm. and you don't quite remember what the scene was but you do remember what the name of the tv show was that that sort of memory of uh, behaviors and experiences that that i would otherwise not have engaged in and was quite suicidal at the time wow um even my my uh suicidal ideation had a set of rules to it you know there were there were certain methods that couldn't be used because somebody would have to clean up after me or somebody would discover me and all these sorts of things and it was in may of 93 when i sought out help because i was i was just completely lost and an intensive amount of therapy that involved both private therapy and inpatient therapy about 18 months later for for eight weeks well the root of my my issues was that i suffered a decade of abuse from the age of two to my teenage years wow um, with two primary abusers that were direct family members um, one was an elder sibling and the other was my mom's spouse um, it, biologically, he would be considered my father, but that's not that's not a title I, I give to him. Yeah. Um, anyway, the the um, out, outside of the the cause of the abuse, the issue, um, my central issue was that, and continues to be, that I'm constantly struggling with um, being invisible and being too visible. Hmm which which is particularly um difficult to navigate in a world where social media is such an important part of most people's lives you know there are certainly ways of getting through life without engaging with social media but you know as an aspiring artist and a disability activist i can't not be on social media mm. so i'm i'm constantly not only struggling with with perceiving myself as either invisible or too visible but finding ways to get the kind of the level and the type of visibility that i want and that's difficult to do because i'm relying on other people to behave in a way that will be positive for me and that's not something you can do because i can't control how somebody else behaves yeah you know Anyway, so 93 was, was when I was diagnosed, and my experience has been that merging, blending, all these, these different terms that are used for people that are dissociative, where all of your personalities are, are slowly merged and or blended together until there's just one left, it was never an option for me because many of my alters have been around since the age of two so by the time i was diagnosed they had 20 years of life wow. experiences under their belts yeah and it just never made sense to me to in any way 
go down a path where I was like, you know, give me your experience, give me your memories, give me your skills, give me your tools. Nice to know you. You don't exist anymore. That was absolutely not something I was willing to engage with. So instead, I've come over, well, 30 years now to see my interior mindscape as a chorus of voices Mm. that are capable of the absolutely the most beautiful harmonies. You know, when you think of Gregorian chants and, and how they just, for me, they make my spine tingle if they're, if they're sung properly, whether it's religious Gregorian chants or whether it's the Gregorian style adapted to modern music, because there's quite a few versions of that. But there's just this, this quality to it where it's rich and deep and the high notes are highlighted as much as the low notes are. And, and there's just this, this easy harmony that seems to work. And my chorus is capable of that. The difficulty is getting my chorus to sing like that most of the time when there's constant stressors on my life and then there's disharmony. So mm-hmm. then I end up having to check in with whoever's not feeling that they can sing their part and find out what they need and all that sort of stuff. And it's been particularly difficult over the past year because I lost my mom Mm. in January of this year. And she was my number one cheerleader. Um, She always supported me regardless of the foolish decisions I made or, or any of the many traumas I've had in my life. She passed in early January of this year. So this year has been a number of firsts. It was um, celebrating her first birthday in March without her. Um, Celebrating our first anniversary as a married couple that she wasn't part of. Mm -hmm. Um, Celebrating my first birthday in November where I didn't get to speak to her on my birthday. And now we're coming up with the holiday season. So it'll be celebrating, you know, first ever Hanukkah and Yule without her being part of it. And I talk about grief and other people have said, you know, grief is terribly personal. Well, to me, it's extremely personal because I'm grieving for 15 different people trying to find 15, not necessarily simpatico ways of dealing with that grief. Wow. Um, And this all, you know, under the, the cloud of, trying to get disabled people in Canada to be recognized as fully functioning human beings that deserve respect and assistance and all kinds of things. So, wow, this is, I mean, thank you so much for sharing this with us. This is an incredible story. I'm so sorry to hear about your mom's passing. Thank you. There was a TV show a couple years ago called Moon Knight on Disney plus. It's a comic book show about, a character yeah. with dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. yeah. Okay, you watched yeah. it. Was that an accurate depiction of DID? That is one of the more accurate depictions I've ever seen. Um, that small six-episode chunk was very clever in the way that, well, they, they chose a couple of things. They chose to make, for that six episodes, one alter in control of when he became Moon Knight. Yeah. To the exclusion of the other altar at the time. And, you know, of course, in the very last episode, you realize that there's a third now, um, which is very much how, how discovering one's altars works. 
that was very, very well done. And, and another um, representation that I thought was very cleverly done was, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the movie. It was part of, of Mr. Glass. And oh, it had oh, uh, uh, Unbreakable. a cowboy in it. Yeah, it, un, uh, Unbreakable, Mr. Glass, and then the third uh, one were split where james yeah. mccavoy yeah i didn't see that one i i loved unbreakable i didn't see the other yeah. movies in that series it w- yet it, it was v- very respectfully done wow um and there's certainly been a lot of criticism about the choices that they made but but when you're trying to portray something as complex as dissociative identity disorder to an unknowledgeable audience because average bear out there wouldn't know most of the time whether they were dealing with somebody that was dissociative or not. Um, The only way you can do that is with clever tricks where you have to show the extremes of the scale. Yeah. So, you know, he had his childlike self, which you saw mostly through memories when he was running around, I guess it was episode four or five in his memories. Yeah, in Moon Knight. And you also, right. And you also saw his his justice-seeking ultimate defender, aggressive, take no shit, I'm going to do what needs to be done to get this done self Yeah. when he became Moon Knight. Yeah. And I, I suspect that the character that was introduced at the very, you know, in the last scene where you find out there's a third in there is uh, the clever one, the negotiator, mm. um, the one that, that uh, is really good at digging up secrets and it quite possibly will be the holder of all the secrets because every dissociative person has one or two alters that are the holders of all the secrets wow. because there are so many secrets to be held. So yeah, I was I was really really impressed with that series. Yeah, well that's good to hear because I learned a lot about DID from that show. This idea that yeah. you have, you know, different personalities or alters living within one body mm-hmm. and there will be one in control at a time. And please, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about, so please stop me if I say something wrong. Uh, but one one personality in control at a time and then it sort of switches back and forth. You know, your body will go, you know, maybe take a walk in the park um, and then come right. home and then you switch who is in control, and then the person who right. becomes present at home has no idea that they just went out and walked in the park, doesn't have memory of that, will maybe just have like a gap in memory. Right. Is, is that the general experience? That's, that's, that's how it starts. That's, mm. what, that's what generally prompts most people suffering dissociation. And by most people, I mean those that haven't sought relief through drugs or alcohol or other addictions, because mm. there's all kinds of ways of responding to memory gaps but that's the way it starts and then my goal was to break down the walls between alters so that i had access to the memories and the skills and all those things that were useful okay which is a really really difficult because you know you have to develop a trust within yourself you have to learn to trust different parts of yourself in order to be granted access and it's very very much a um, a process where the giver is in control of what's going on. You can, I can ask as many times as I want um, if the person holding specific skills or memories isn't willing to give those up. There's nothing I can do yeah. to, you know, I could just continue to ask. So most of the time I experience what's called co-consciousness where I'm aware of everything that's going on 
and don't suffer from severe memory gaps like I had before. And that was through work over time, learning how to communicate yeah. with your oh, alters. Oh, yes, years. Yeah. years. Wow. And it's not, it's not only years of learning to communicate, but making that a lifestyle choice mm. where you continue to engage in that communication and doing check-ins and stuff like that. Because if I suddenly decided, you know, I'm quote, cured now, I don't need to bother with these check-ins, it wouldn't be any longer than three to six months before I found myself suddenly in my car, 400 kilometers away, obviously having decided to road trip somewhere with absolutely no memory of having gotten there and then having to call my husband and go, um, oops, you know, so, so it's, it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's in my experience, it's something that's with me for the rest of my life. And for me, it's, it's secondhand now. Yeah, You know, I just sort of do these mental check-ins with everybody and see how everyone's going. Um, last weekend, one of my alters that handles cleaning, you know, making things clean and organized and all that sort of stuff, really, really wanted to grieve mom's passing in her way. So for probably four or five hours that day, I did nothing but clean the kitchen. And, you know, she's the kind that put a bleach water solution, half bleach, half water in the sink and throw in some pine salt and all that sort of stuff. And you don't have gloves. Oh, well, yeah. you know, and then I have to deal with the fact that my hands are all reddened and, and not terribly happy and whatnot afterwards. But, you know, she was able to mourn in her way because she used to be the one that that cleaned with with mum all those years asked and they would discuss all kinds of womanly things and mm. and stuff like that i had no difficulty doing that because i knew that as soon as she had cleaned to her heart's content and was satisfied with what she had done she would step back and and i'd be back in control and i have a full memory of having done it wow but it was very much her directing what was going on yeah, fascinating. You know, what was it like yeah. to find out that you have DID? Because it sounds like you were having these fugue states when you were younger, yeah. missing time. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, you go through this process of learning how to communicate with your alters and becoming conscious and present when someone else is in control. And that, I mean, that's right. incredible in and of itself. But how do you start that journey? How do you discover that you have alters? What was that like? The interesting thing in my case was being diagnosed really wasn't much of a shock to my system because I had always, for years, I had been speaking to my alters out loud, hmm. especially as a child and whatnot. Not so much when I was a teenager because I had, I had learned not to do that because people would look strangely at me. But I was always speaking to the the older as in having been around the longest alters out loud since i was a child and um i remember mom telling me when i was preteen, you know she asked who victoria was because i was forever talking to victoria who's one of my alters and she had told me that my birth was an interesting one because I was actually supposed to be one of twins. Hmm. And the whole time that, that she was pregnant, because she was huge with me, the doctors assumed that she was so big because of the fact that she was having twins. And then I was born a very heavy, very long, very overdue baby. 
I was three and a half weeks late and then there was no twin. And wow. it turned out that the other twin had been absorbed. So, you know, when I was diagnosed with DID, I had just assumed that there was something, you know, metaphysical going on yeah. that I wow. had absorbed the, the personality of my twin. At the time, I didn't have access to any of the memories of the abuse. And, you know, I've always been somebody that, that accepts the possibility of things that, that would be improbable in average bear's life, that yeah. I accept the possibility of those. And I wait for those improbable situations to either prove or disprove themselves rather than actively seeking out something to prove or disprove them. So I was willing to engage with being DID to see where that took me, to see if that would provide me with the answers mm. I was looking for. And it did. Wow. Others will tell you that it's a curse because it can be very debilitating. I tend to say that, that I don't suffer from a disorder so much as I experience being dissociative. And I, I navigate that path. You know, it's, it's no more difficult for me than it is for a tracker to be, you know, out in the woods hunting their prey kind of thing. I have to make do with what I have. I can't wish that, you know, life was any different. It doesn't do me any good to wish that life was different because, you know, people ask you all the time, you know, if you could turn back time and stop the abuse and everything from happening, would you? The expected answer is, well, of course I would. And I have to answer honestly, no, because had that stuff not happened, had I not become dissociative, had X, had Y, had Z, had all that been canceled out, I don't know who I'd be. Yeah. And it sounds like these personalities have been developing your entire life. They've been with you yeah. Yeah. since you were a small child. You've never known yeah. anything different. This has no. always been no. a part of you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I have to deal with the cards that I'm dealt. Yeah. You know, the best way I possibly can. So it makes my, my physical problems, my migraines and the fibromyalgia and whatnot, I wouldn't say secondary to my psychological issues, but it doesn't surprise me that, you know, I have something as ephemeral as fibromyalgia to deal with. You know, it's not something concrete where you can yeah. look at it and go, these are the symptoms. These are, this is how we treat them. There's surgery for this. There's a pill for this, you know, et cetera. That just isn't possible. So it, it doesn't really surprise me that I'd end up with something as nebulous as fibromyalgia to yeah. deal with. For me these days, it's not the dissociation so much as it's the anxiety and the depression and how that feeds into the dissociation mm -hmm. that makes daily life difficult for me. Yeah. And, you know, being in chronic pain is just, uh, yeah. that's a whole other thing that you're living with on top of all this and you mentioned having these these seizures where you get stuck yeah. for periods of time uh and yeah. you know migraines i mean this is a lot to to live with all at once do any of your alters have chronic pain or is that specific yes. to you no no i've found over the years that that certain alters experience certain types of joint pain wow more sharply than others do so i wouldn't say that that they hold the pain so much as for instance you know my hands um 
tend to be most bothersome for the altars that are used to using their hands for some reason. I have one altar, his name's Winery, deals strictly with data. Mm. And it's not even facts versus non-facts. It's just everything is data. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't experience any physicality whatsoever. And oddly enough, when I'm suffering a particularly bad cluster headache or migraine, if I let him take the wheel, take control while that's coming on, it gives me enough relief to lay down yeah. and, you know, take a couple of Tylenol and get to sleep because the moment he takes charge, my physical symptoms disappear Wow! because he doesn't experience any, any physicality whatsoever because he's all about data. And that's like a superpower for, for you know, I'm <laughs> someone who lives with chronic pain and that Sounds yeah. like, uh, that sounds great. <laughs> that sounds like a really nice option. <laughs> it, it is very useful. That the, the trade-off is that I end up getting stuck with access to a whole bunch of useless facts. Wow. <laughs> that make absolutely no sense to know. And then I'll like spout off at the most inopportune times, you know, when I'm at a, some sort of social gathering or something like that. And I'll just spout off these useless facts that he's managed to to gather over time. It's sort of like he does this the system dump every now and then where he's gathered too much data and has nothing to do with it. Yeah. So I'll just throw out this crap. Who was the first altar that you met? Uh, the first one that I met was Victoria. Victoria. And is, is she the yeah. one that's maybe been with you the longest, do you think? Um, she's been the most vocal, the longest. Yeah. The one that's been with me the longest doesn't tend to speak too terribly much. Wow. Um, because she protects the essence of who I likely would have been had none of this happened. So she's forever yeah. protecting an infant that's not quite two years old. Wow. What's her name? She's Empress. Empress. Wow. Yeah. She knits a lot. <laughs> she she just sort of sits there and knits and, and watches the baby. Wow, that's that's fascinating. What was it like yeah. to meet Victoria for the first time? I you know, I'm I'm thinking just about the loneliness that I have experienced throughout my life at various points in my life. And yeah. I think loneliness is one of the the great banes of human existence. It's one of those things that I yes. think you know, loneliness terrorizes so many people. And so many people yeah. do things that they regret because they're acting out of a sense of loneliness. But yes. you have constant companionship. What, what was it like to yeah. meet one of those constant companions for the first time? And, and how has that affected your, your life and your loneliness? It was certainly an experience meeting her for the first time. Because the way of meeting her was back then in the, in the early 90s, I would tape record my sessions with my private therapist wow. and then review them later. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, to, to sort of, you know, to review them and find out what I had discussed and as, as a way of resolving my memory gaps. So hearing her speak for the first time and then eventually speaking directly to her for the first time was quite an experience because mm. she is... Uh, very no-nonsense, take me as I am. In these days, she'd be considered a boss bitch. Um, <laughs> and very uh, sexually adventurous and all those sorts of things, which gave me pause 
because it it made me wonder about whether whether I was attracted to men because of her influence or wow. whether that was something endemic to myself. And um, it was a topic of discussion internally and through therapy for a number of years. And it just finally got to the point where it was like, it doesn't really matter where this is, this is coming from. This yeah. is the way things are. Yeah. Because of her and meeting some of the other women and also meeting a few non-gendered alters, you know, there was, there was a constant struggle probably for about two or three years of, um, wondering what my gender was so i went mm. through i didn't go through gender dysphoria so much as i just didn't know what my gender was and for simplicity's sake would refer to myself in the plural all the time but then found that that was just confusing people to no end and then finally decided that presenting myself as a man and keeping the body that i have without going through any serious surgery to to get rid of organs or anything like that was the only way that would work for me because you know having major surgery and whatnot well you know what happens at the age of 60 or 70 if i decide i would still like to have the organs that were removed yeah it's not like they can be put back kind of thing um so gender sort of took a back seat to everything else that was going on because it's not just that gender is a construct because it is but gender being a construct is also one of the ways that we humans tend to define ourselves. Mm. You know, we tend to to look at genders as sort of a shorthand for, you know, I have this trait, this trait, this trait, and this trait, therefore I am a man or I'm a woman or I am non-binary or, you know, I am trans or, or whatever. But it just became a non-issue, you know, by the time I had moved from the Ontario area. I used to live near Toronto out to the Maritimes where I am now. By the time I met the man that became my husband, I had worked through those issues and, and, you know, was very open with him from our second or third virtual date about what he was getting himself into. And almost 26 years later, he's still here. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. There's been a lot of discussion culturally recently about gender and it's becoming... Yeah culturally accepted to have a different gender identity than the binary, which is, you know, amazing progress. And, you know, it's now in the cultural conversation for people to kind of assess their own gender and to make their own choices. And obviously there's pushback against that, but this is something that I'm very much in favor of and think has been like a very good positive step forward for, for culture as a whole. Yeah. Has that, discussion impacted you at all you you mentioned like referring to yourself in the plural and there is yeah. now a you know a new cultural norm of of they them is that something that you have right. thought about for yourself um it's something i did in the beginning you know those people that know me well know that i'm multiple and just accept that as a fact those that don't know me well don't really tend to need to know Mm. you know nobody needs to know that griff the artist is necessarily multiple you know unless it comes through in my artwork which which it can the one thing about the current larger conversation around gender that bothers that concerns me is that this very well-earned and necessary drive 
or people to define how they want to be perceived, that's a very positive thing. The, the sort of flip side of that is these demands that you get from some of the more vocal voices that because they, as a person, want to be perceived like this, then they will be the one to determine how all other people that they perceive to be part of their umbrella will be perceived. Mm. That's a, a difficult conversation to have with some people because they're so caught up in making sure that they as a person are respected and accepted at the level that they want. So therefore, they go to the extreme of trying to speak for all other people that share some of the same physical and or social values that they have. For me, the, it always it comes down to personal choice. I can only speak for myself. And I wish that, that more activists in all kinds of spaces, the trans space, the disabled space, all the other spaces, would stick to only speaking for themselves. Mm. You know, they, they, I can't speak for other disabled people. I can't speak for other people that are dissociative. I can't speak for other people that experience fibromyalgia. And unfortunately, when people see me, all they see is an old white dude. So therefore, all of many times, all of my opinions are considered null and void because I'm an angry white dude. Mm, yeah, that, this is such you a know? fascinating conversation. And yeah, for, for someone who is advocating on behalf of people to express themselves based off their personal choice in a way that yeah. has not been societally accepted to the detriment of millions of people... You know, it is interesting that, you know, some activists then try to impose their personal choice on others, which which is yeah. kind of missing the point. But it's also like, yeah. you know, fighting this uphill battle uh, that mm -hmm. has just sort of exploded into the cultural consciousness recently. So it's so hard to navigate. And it's very, you know, and you have such an interesting yeah. perspective because you have multiple genders within you. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I, I try to ask people at the beginning of conversation, I forgot to ask you before we started recording, what are your preferred pronouns? He, him. Yeah. Anything except late for dinner. And I'm likely to, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's interesting with my legal name, um, because it's so unique that if I hear that, I know to, that somebody's looking for me, not something I'll share right now, yeah. but. And that's not for, for my own sake so much as it's for um, the privacy of my in-laws that live very close to me. I totally understand. My views tend to be perceived as very polarizing sometimes. And the last thing I'd want is for, for those relatives to suffer any blowback from you know, people connecting the dots and discovering who I am. You know, Not that, that the adults would mind terribly much. They'd just tell them to go to hell. Um, but, you know, the kids don't need to necessarily be subject to that sort of crap. Yeah. But no, generally speaking, my pronouns are he, him, his. Yeah. And so you mentioned uh, like 15 alters. Is, is that yeah. number changing over time? No, it's been stable for uh, most of the journey. Um, it started with three and then relatively quickly, I'd say within the first year, um, went all the way up to 15 as more memories and, and skills and things like that were uncovered. 
and it's been 15 ever since. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nobody lurking out there that I'm aware of. So I have one identity and I struggle to get what I need to get done, done in a day and because chronic pain, <laughs> you know, you got to rest. You got, I got to watch my, my energy levels yeah. and I'm just, so, oh, I feel so behind on life and just getting things done. How, how do you get things done with, with 15 alters all wanting to exert their interests and their, their passions, like 15 individuals who all have validity and agency, but one body, how do you, how do you get anything done? Not easily. <laughs> um, I've developed a lot of negotiation over time and generally speaking, everyday tasks, you know, there's, there's no demands to, you know, that one wants to do things or, or anything like that. And generally speaking, I've learned to delegate tasks so mm. that when I'm driving, it gives those that enjoy the driving experience. All they want is the opportunity to experience life. They don't necessarily want to be doing anything. They just want to experience life. So when I'm driving, you know, they sort of sit in the front seat and, and they get to moo at the cows and mm. or scream at the people coming up the road or you know, test out their navigation skills and whatnot. And when I'm engaged in art practice, there's this constant non-negotiable open door policy that mm. anybody that wants to be creative can do so. And the primary concern is not necessarily making something that's sellable. It's just creating art. Wow. So after a, a, an art creation session, I can look on it with fresh eyes and determine whether it's something sellable, something that I want to include in my in my portfolio, my professional portfolio, or whether it's something I want to keep private. Yeah, you know, you mentioned this being like a chorus, and it sounds yeah. sort of like you're the conductor. I am in many ways. I am in many ways. Is there such a thing as a primary identity? There, there is for some. Some have been able to maintain a core identity throughout all of the years where um, the altars hold the negative experiences to protect the core from what's going on. In my case, that didn't happen because my core personality was so young when everything started that there was no way for that person to survive without being protected to the point of being hidden. Yeah. But in my experience, it became sort of a journey without purpose to go looking for a core because once I've decided, you know, that, that so-and-so is now the core that tends to make everybody else less important. It tends yeah. to mean that that person's, opinions and perceptions and actions and whatnot have a, an authority that the rest of them may not necessarily have, which again, seemed very disrespectful to me. Mm. Everybody pulled their weight as they needed to. Um, I managed to survive into being an adult and on my own, you know, without going to jail, without committing any serious crimes, 
without any of the things that tend to happen to just anybody. You know, you make all kinds of stupid decisions and you end up in juvie court because you're tardy for school or whatever. I managed to navigate all of that um, without any serious consequence. And I did it because I had this chorus to back me up to do what needed to be done. So in some ways, Griff is an alter. In in many ways, Griff is is my public persona. Ah. Not really a, a personality so much as, you know, a part that I not even a part that I play. It's it's who I present myself to be to the public at large, hmm. where I filter through all of the other stuff that's going on and decide whether I'm gonna share this or not share this, how I'm gonna to respond to this person, you know, very much the facilitator kind of thing. As Griff, I don't have a backstory or anything like that, you know, because I am Griff when I need to be Griff and that's it. That tends to be, you know, when I'm dealing with the public or, you know, being too loud. The interesting thing about it for me was part of the healing was that I had to accept responsibility for any behaviors and any actions I engaged in. So if I say something, I have to own up to having said that. I can't use the excuse of, oh, well, that wasn't me. That was alter X, Y, or Z, Mm. you know, or I did something that somebody found to be a problem or was hurtful. I have to own that and say, I did that. I'm sorry. You know, I can't, I can't do a YouTube apology, you know, for, (laughs) for things that are going on in my life. I don't even own a gray sweatshirt. So there's, you know, absolutely no way that anybody would believe a YouTube apology from me anyway. So, (laughs) What do you do if your alters aren't getting along? That hasn't happened in a in a very very long time. Wow! Um, because every as everybody became aware of everybody else, everybody just sort of rallied around the most damaged ones and said, you know, we we need to put our differences for how we perceive life and you know exchanges with other people and all that stuff. We have to put that aside to protect the most vulnerable. It's interesting because it's evolved into a sort of thing where I tend to say that I don't people very well. Mm. I deal with persons. I can even deal with groups of persons, but the peopling that's involved, you know, going to social functions and the small talk or um, going shopping and, and having to deal with the people that are moving like herds of farm animals through the aisles that don't tend to know what they're doing but block the aisles i don't people well and and that i think is a result of the internal cooperation where we've just sort of decided we've got enough going on inside that having to deal with the nonsense that goes on outside haven't got the energy for it not worth our time that's beautiful and something that i wish society at large could figure out a way to do is to recognize you know we're all in this together. It's in our best interest to get along. How do we do so? And this idea yeah. that you refer to your chorus, I think is so beautiful as well, because it's all yeah. of these personalities singing in unison to achieve a common goal. And that's just yeah. so beautiful and, and really fascinating and really makes me think about my own personality and see like the relationship between my personality and my body in a different way because your experience really kind of makes me think about life in a different way, which I think is, is yeah. really, really amazing and interesting. 
And I also love the way that you talk about this is just your experience, not necessarily yeah. an illness. It's, it's who you no. are. It's your, it's yeah. your lived experience. And yeah. it's society that needs to change their opinions about what is and isn't normal and what is and isn't an illness. And being yeah. neurodivergent, being disabled, having dissociative identity disorder, these are yeah. all just different states of being that different people are experiencing. And the idea of trying to quantify what is normal and what is acceptable is sort of what we are fighting against, you know, as yeah. we are talking about you know, gender identity, there's so many people that have been yeah. forced to live outside of their gender identity because society wouldn't yeah. accept it. And now we're sort of trying to change that. And when we talk yeah. about, you know, disability advocacy, there are so many people that are disabled that are not able to be themselves or bring them their full selves to the table because society says that yeah. it's not okay. And that is not okay. And that's what we're fighting against. Yeah. And having dissociative identity disorder is a state of being that is normal, you know, that is your normal. Yeah. And that is yeah. within the realm of what human beings experience on the spectrum yeah. of what is normal. Society should see it that way because that's what it is to you. And that's, you're the person living with it. That's the lived experience. And I think getting a, a sense of that from you has been just so incredibly valuable for me today. Thank you. There, I, I, it's interesting you bring that up because I was thinking about the past two or three days there was something just nagging at the back of my mind where, you know, I, I couldn't put my finger on it and figure out what it was. And then it suddenly struck me that the language about disability around disability for me is a huge problem because we tend to view disabilities either as visible or invisible. Yeah. Which means that they're, you know, the words themselves mean either they're seen or they're not seen. And that's not, for me, what the issue is. The issue is what people tend to refer to as invisible disabilities, fibromyalgia, many psychological disorders, many autoimmune disorders are referred to, you know, by the general public as invisible disabilities because, you know, you don't have a cane or a guide dog or wear sunglasses or have a hearing aid or any of these sort of visual cues to get people to realize what's going on, they're not invisible, they're hidden. Because those of us that experience those disabilities have learned over time that in order to make it in this world, we have to specifically hide that part of our identity. You know, you can't go into a job interview and say, I'm neurodivergent, um, I have this psych disorder, I suffer from my fibromyalgia, and I have um, difficulty with, with uh, executive control, and then expect to be hired by that company. You know, Starbucks wouldn't hire you as a barista if you walked into an interview and did those things. <laughs> and, it, and it's not just presenting our best self to the world. We have to actively go about a certain portion of every day hiding not only the disability, but any of the skills that having that disability may have taught us. You know, wow. somebody that has difficulty with executive control has probably learned to look at problems from very unique angles and come at the solutions from the back end. Yeah. Because going at it directly is not something that they can do well. 
So they've had to learn how to sidestep the direct access and, you know, sort of do the side quests in Final <laughs> Fantasy before, you know, and forget about the main quest because eventually they're going to get to the main quest. So I want the language around that to change where it's not an invisible disability. There's nothing invisible about suffering from acute pain. It's very visible if you just opened up your eyes and saw what was going mm. on. Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing invisible about many psychiatric conditions because the general public sees the behaviors that come with those psychiatric conditions. They just don't want to hear the words that are attached to those behaviors. Wow. You know, nobody, nobody wants to hear that somebody has borderline personality disorder or that somebody suffers from major depression. They don't want to hear that because if they hear that, then they have to deal with the fact that their reaction is either going to be, oh, well, just get over it. Or, you know, more supportively, it, what can I do for you at this point in time? Is there anything I can do to support you in this? Yeah. You know, they don't want to have to make that decision. So we as the disabled people have had to make the choice to hide these things from the rest of the world. You know, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, that whole, it's that whole dirty laundry argument you know we don't air our dirty laundry well as far as i'm concerned you get to see my wife fronts and my undershirts and everything else <laughs> i don't care yeah you know and that's important it's it, it takes a thick skin to get to that point and i have lived on both sides of the equation with an invisible illness that then became visible and then sort of went back to being invisible again based off of you yeah. know my wheelchair use or my cane use before that and it the right. way that i walked through the world or rolled through the world completely changed and based off exactly. the way that other people interacted with, with me because of the visibility of this thing that had yeah. already existed that i had been living with exactly so yeah extremely extremely complicated and having yeah. to build that thick skin to be okay with being visible was crucial for me in my own acceptance of myself and my own ability to be myself and to 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 live authentically and starting this podcast yeah. was you know a huge leap in that direction and it's brought me so much peace to yeah. integrate that self that part of myself and be accepted and then i get to have these incredible conversations like this is so much fun i just you know <laughs> i'm just i'm having just the best time having this conversation this is what i thrive on is this you know getting to talk to someone on a deep level and yeah. and hear something that yeah. matters to them and learn about the the breadth of humanity in doing so. I mean, this this is fantastic. <laughs> um, I, we haven't focused much on your other diagnoses. You know, we've you mentioned you have this constellation of things going on. Yeah, and we've already talked for over an hour, but I I want to make sure we're not missing anything there. Is there anything with the other you know major pains that you experience that you'd like to cover today? Well, the the uh, fibro, there's there's absolutely nothing that can be done about it. I mean, it's pain management at this point in time. I hope yeah. that at some point in the future, you know, our our clever scientists will will find some sort of treatment for fibro and other autoimmune disorders because there's something seriously wrong going on with one's body when you know the nervous system is responding to things out of whack of yeah. the the uh, stimuli that it's receiving which is common to all autoimmune disorders you know the the general sort of understanding is yeah your nervous system isn't terribly pleased right now we're not quite sure what's stimulating it but you know 
take this to, to manage the pain. And, you know, the migraines and the cluster headaches, they don't necessarily have triggers, but I've learned to distinguish when one is coming on. Um, so, you know, I deal with it appropriately. And, you know, other than that, it's just, it's like I said at the beginning, it's, it's the anxiety and, and the, the bouts of depression that are the most difficult to deal with. Yeah. Um, because, you know, my medication, um, removes the peaks and the valleys, you know, sort of stabilize my mood so that depressive episodes aren't as debilitating as they would be without the medication and the anxiety. It's, it's still a generalized anxiety, but I have less episodes of acute panic attacks and things like that. And, you know, the trade-off is I just, I don't leave my home too terribly much. Mm. You know, my husband does 95 plus percent of the grocery shopping and anything that needs to be done outside. I attend any off-site meetings, like if I have to go to the doctors or anything like that, I will prepare for days beforehand so that I know that I'm good to go. And then live with the fact that I'll have to recover from it for a couple of days afterwards mm-hmm. by just nesting. And I just take care of myself. And I've developed over the decades, you know, I live near poverty, which is not something great. But, you know, I've sort of had to adopt the, the mindset that uh, bill collectors can wait. We manage our monthly bills and manage to get by. And I just sort of continue to have hope and I can't allow myself to worry over much about that sort of stuff. I still have acute bouts of being quite angry about the state of affairs, but, you know, I've learned to direct my anger into advocacy and and activism instead of just getting uselessly angry about it. You know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very much a writer of strong emails and and (laughs) things like that. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, I love asking people about their relationships and how their major pains affect their relationships. And your case is such an interesting one, you know, with dissociative identity disorder, what is the relationship been like with your husband, with these alters? Um, He has met each and every one of them. I've never put him in the position where I've asked him, you know, if he has a preference one or the other, because as far as he's concerned, they're all me and I'm all of them. Yeah. Um, but he has certainly learned over time and educated himself as to specific ways of dealing. Like when my mom had um, a cancer scare many, many, many years ago, my youngest ones took it very, very strongly and had a very hard time with it. And I found myself just absolutely overwhelmed with catastrophizing what was going on and sort of pre-mourning the loss of my mom. This is going back some 13 or more years. And he was just able to to see what was going on and do what was necessary to bring me out of that, that state where I was able to start looking at things clearly and logically and from a distance and, you know, wait for the doctor's reports. And as it turned out, everything was fine. The, the cancer wasn't evident at that particular point in time. I don't think he necessarily has personal relationships with any of my alters because he's never he's never perceived them as being separate from who I am. Yeah. You know. 
I'm, I'm pretty sure that he has his preferences as to which ones he prefers not to have to deal with, <laughs> because some can be rather abrupt and some don't have terribly strong opinions of men in general. But he's he's never been rude or or anything like that to any of them, and you know, sort of takes me as I am. We we tend to joke a lot and say that we get along so well because our crazies complement each other. Mm. You know, he's got his own demons and his ways of dealing with things, and I have mine, and you know, we fit like two puzzle pieces. Wow, that's beautiful. You know, I love that. Yeah. Well, I have one more question for you. Yep. For anyone else who may be listening, who may have dissociative identity disorder, I think that yeah. the way that you have integrated this into your life is amazing and beautiful and wonderful and sounds yeah. like really hard work. You know, first to have to sure. make sure. contact with your alters, learn how to communicate with them, learn how to work in tandem and become a chorus. That's a real yeah. journey that you've been on. For someone who's at the beginning of their journey, maybe just yeah. discovering, you know, having some fugue states, just discovering that they have DID and wanting to make that leap that you have made to integrate into a chorus. Where do you start? Oh, that's a difficult one because, you know, I have to recognize that there's a certain amount of privilege involved in getting good therapy. Hmm. And when it comes to dissociative disorders, there's, there's always been this fractious sort of division within the therapeutic field of how best to treat it. I would have to say that my best advice is you have to develop a very, very strong instinct at its most basic level for what feels right and what feels wrong, not necessarily good or bad, but what feels right for that particular point in time and learn to hone that particular skill mm. because being able to determine what's right and by right, I mean appropriate. So let's use that word instead, appropriate versus inappropriate. Honing that skill by learning to listen to yourself will allow you to find a therapist that works well with you. You know, when your little inappropriate bell goes off for whatever reason, the buzzer goes off, it'll help you decide whether there are certain things you're going to share with that therapist or not. And as you discover those alters, whether they're fully formed alters or whether they're just emotional states, they will also let you know what's appropriate and inappropriate. And you'll just, there'll be a lot of pain. There'll be a lot of work and struggle and a lot of time spent thinking that you're just spinning your wheels and nothing's actually getting done. You have to forget the big picture and realize that you are somebody that needs some type of healing. So you need to take the small victories and just, just work on the appropriate versus inappropriate. You know, is my spouse being appropriate with me? You know, is the way they're speaking to me harming me or helping me? Same in my work relationships. And when, you know, an interesting thought that, that you hadn't considered or, an, or a memory comes, you have to sort of honor that. You have to give it time and space. You have to learn to, because flashbacks are a big part of it. You have to learn to just honor that and be able to look at it objectively and go, this is not happening to me now. 
this happened or didn't happen to me at some point in the past. So how do I look at this objectively? And, and you have to, you cannot do this on your own. It is absolutely not something that can be done on your own. Anybody that tells you that they, they cured themselves or they treated themselves of something as serious as dissociative disorders on their own with absolutely no help at all is lying to you. Mm. Wow. What an incredible yeah. conversation. This has been so much fun. What a gift to our audience to be so forthright in sharing your experience. Uh, please tell our listeners where we can go to connect with you online, your website, any advocacy work you want to point out, or social media you'd like to share. Well, most of my advocacy, uh, as far as getting in the faces of, of politicians and whatnot, is done through either Twitter or well, I guess it's known as X now, or um, any of the other apps that are out there. And I'm under Griff Knight, which is G-R-Y-P-H-K-N-I-G-H-T on X app. And I have a website where I sell my art. Um, my art tends to be, I categorize it as landscapes of mind. I tend to use the landscape model as a framework for what I paint and what I paint tends to be journeys that I've taken through my mind and I present mm. it as a landscape. Wow. And those, are, those are available at griffstuff.com, G R Y P H S T U F F.com. And I'm as Griff stuff on Facebook, on Instagram. There's over oh, the new blue sky app. There's oh, yeah. an extra S in there or stuff. So it becomes Griff's stuff g-r-y-p-h two s's t-u-f-f and you know i have blogs devoted to my advocacy and other blogs to my painting process i have prints for sale and mugs and you know all that sort of stuff and right now um the vast majority of my work is very heavily influenced by doom i'm working on a rather major project trying to get some funding together to release a um, limited series art book and accompanying 16 month calendar and special prints and stuff for late fall of next year um, to celebrate the release of the the two Villeneuve Dune movies that'll come out by then. Yeah. So. Wow. Awesome. Griff, I can't thank you enough for an incredible conversation. I can't believe that this is my podcast. <laughs> I'm just like, I, it's so fascinating, so interesting, and just what an incredible episode. And I'm just like, wow, I get to put this out on Major Pain and it will live there in perpetuity. And that is so exciting to me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very enjoyable. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com.
Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.